Good evening. Good to see each and every one of you this evening. I know you've come here tonight to uh, connect with your God, and we're going to do that as we worship God, as we study His Word. As you can see, we're going to partake of communion this evening and be reminded that our God uh, gave His life for us as our uh, sacrifice in place of us having to take the penalty. And um, we're also going to praise and worship Him. And He is a great God, and He loves us deeply. If you're watching with us online, welcome. We invite you to go grab some communion elements, and we'll do that in a little bit. But right now, let's begin by celebrating that our God is alive. Let's stand and worship Him. We're 
he lives that was a happy day when we met our Lord Jesus for the first time and he saved us from our sins oh happy day let's sing about it the greatest day
Lord, that last phrase sums it all up. Because of your incredible grace and mercy towards us, you are our hope. And so again, in the middle of our week, we run to you. We bow our knee at your footstool, worship and adore you. Jesus, thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for being our shepherd, for caring deeply for us, for bringing us peace and comfort. We thank you that you are our high priest and that you are always making intercession for us before the throne of God. Oh, you are so much. And we worship you, our living hope. And we incline our ear to your word. Teach us this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we will be finishing 2 Corinthians tonight and begin the Gospel of John next week. And you're going, well, wait a minute. I thought John was like on the other side. Well, if you remember, we had hit the Gospels pretty hard for a while. And so we had jumped over into Paul's letters to the Church of Corinth. And so we're going to go back and we're going to finish John because we want to go through all of the books of the Bible, just not quite necessarily in that order. So we're going to do John a little bit faster than what we did in 2019 when we went through it, because I think we were a year and a half in John. So that's we're, we are not doing that, but we're going to be there. Um, also, for you guys, I want to encourage you to uh, join us on Wednesday mornings at 530 for Bible Day. We'll be starting Obadiah. Um, next week we finished Hebrews and this morning and doing that. Had a great time at church camp this last week. Uh, we had a ton of people, over 100 people on Saturday night, and, and there was a bunch of y'all that were here, and Pastor Mike did a good job on, on his message. I, I listened to make sure that I would hear the corrections that I needed to make in my message. That was taken care of, and so a lot of really cool stuff's happening. We're, we're already looking to fall, and, and the launches and the things that are going on, that's happening. But tonight we're going to be finishing up his, Paul's letter, and as he is finishing this letter, he is preparing for his third and final visit uh, to this church. And if you remember, he's been having to defend himself in light of all the false teachers and those that were trying to discredit him. Now, mind you, in Acts 18, we're told that Paul went and he, he birthed the church. He went and he evangelized in this area, and people had come to faith. Uh, and yet, over a period of time, he had come to this place where now they weren't really trusting him. And because they started listening to the secular. Question, is there a danger when you start listening to people more than God? Maybe a little bit of a problem. Because what ends up happening is people start giving opinions and, and as I've shared before, opinions are like armpits. Everybody's got at least two, and they all stink, and that's not good. So these opinions were about Paul were coming in from these Gnostics and the false teachers that were coming in, trying to discredit them. And the Corinthian church, we've been in Corinthians for a while, they were very carnal, they were, they were immoral, they were idolatrous, and Paul is having to do a series of corrections with them. One of the things they were saying was, Paul, your speech is... Is, is all bark and, and no bite. You're, you're writing this letter from a distance, and when you get here, you're really not all that. And so they were taking some of that, that strength away from him. 
the integrity of the church is in danger when people start to listen to the world. As a church as a whole, church leaders, what happens when church leadership starts listening to the world rather than listening to God? Well, the integrity starts to go away, and so those opinions are there. And, and when they develop the practice of stop listening to God and stop listening to God's um, leadership through the leaders... Then we start having schisms and arguments and all of these different things. God has ordained leadership within the church, and those ordained leaders need to be listened to in such a way that they can bring about the teaching, instruction, reproof, and correction unto righteousness. That's the leader's role. In fact, we study today in Hebrews uh, at the end there in, in 13, and it says, don't, don't be a pain in the neck to your leaders. And that's kind of very loosely paraphrased, but... Because why? Because, as, as the author of Hebrews says, that leaders have to give an answer for your soul. We have to answer to God. And so Paul, as he's writing this, you get, he's coming at it from a couple of different angles. One, he's coming at it from the founder of the church and the apostle, and he has apostolic authority. On the other side of, of the same coin for Paul, he is coming at it as a spiritual father. And he cares for them. Think about your wayward children. Think about where they're at. And as a parent, you want to correct them, but also as a parent, you want to love them. And how do you feel when they rebel against you and they don't listen or they challenge your authority and say, I'm not going to listen to you? Those are the emotions that Paul is going through as he's preparing to come to Corinth and to deal with this. So let's jump right in, 12 Verses 1 through 10, we'll start out. And Paul, Paul starts out, and again, we're, we started in chapter 10 with him defending himself. And so this is the second part of that. So he's continuing to defend himself, whether it was based off of the works that he was doing or the teaching. But now he's going to defend himself from the position of the vision and, and the blessing that he can be, but also the suffering that he went through. He said, boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was 14 years ago, whether in body, I don't know, or out of body, I don't know. God knows such a man was caught up in the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpre inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. But if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will, speak, I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than what he sees in me or hears of me. Paul's been moving through a list. And as he's moved through this list, he's been giving his credentials of being an apostle called by Jesus, authenticating that apostleship by the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he had been doing. And so now he comes to this third level of, of defending his character and who he is by revealing a vision within this. He has a vision as a true apostle of God, a special revelation of heaven. Now, some would say that Paul's a liar or he's just boasting or bragging about such a thing that is there. So you've got to ask the question, why did Paul feel it necessary to share the vision? 
why was it important for him to share this vision to the church at Corinth within this, especially when he doesn't say what he heard or if he saw anything at all? He just says, I had a vision within this. One of the things that Paul was coming against was the fact that the, the cultists would thrive on the, the special visions or the special signs, and they would use this to authenticate their ministry. So false prophets and false teachers will build their ministry based on signs and wonders and miracles and visions or the ecstatic. Why? Because you can't argue against the ecstatic, and it seems hyper-spiritual. And it draws people in. Why? Because it's entertainment. The signs, the wonders, the miracles, and the visions are all entertainments. When somebody says, thus saith the Lord, you think they must really be connected to God. Or they do a miracle, or they do a sign. That person must really be connected to God. That person must be really holy. And so they would build their ministry on that. Now, Paul, it's interesting, as you read through this, it's a little hard to read. He says, you know, boasting is necessary, but I don't want to boast. But I've got to boast. Why does he have to boast? Because he can't remain silent. He needs to declare, but, he, but in his mind, even declaring the truth of what his personal experience was, in his mind, it is boasting. He says, you're forcing me to do this. I don't want to do this. But because... My, my credentials are being challenged. I'm going to boast, but as we're going to read a little bit later, I'm going to boast in the Lord. Again, false prophets, false teachers, sometimes even TV evangelists and all of that, they talk about how great they are. Paul would only say how great God is. And that's the difference. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. I'm going to boast in what the Lord has done. Within this visions, they think they're all that because they have these special visions. I'm boasting out of this condition of weakness. And, and he believes that this self-talk or boasting is foolishness. Self-talk and boasting is foolishness for the Christ follower. You realize you and I are absolutely nothing apart from God? But in Christ, we can do all things through Christ who, what? Strengthens me. Do you realize that Paul, as he's, he's telling this account, it wasn't him that sought out the vision. He didn't go out into the wilderness area and sit on a rock and say, God, show me. But he was chosen by God to be caught up, to be, have this vision revealed. It wasn't because of his own merit. Do you realize that you and I have been chosen by God not based on our own merit? That while I was yet a sinner, Jesus died for me. That's an amazing thing. I don't boast in anything that I do or anything that, that God... It's, it's all what God does. But the enemies of, of Paul and the enemies of Christ were, were trying to pull him away and they were challenging him. And so Paul steps into the supernatural experience a bit reluctantly. Within this, he describes what we know to be his personal rapture. And you say, well, rapture? Is rapture in the Bible? It is. But not the word rapture. And notice how he talks about it in verse 2. He says, I know a man who, in Christ, the dative is in Christ. So I know a man in Christ. He's talking about himself, but he's talking about himself in this third person condition because he doesn't want to say 
that it was him that was caught up. And within this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body, I don't know. So he says, I don't know if this was a real, like my whole body went to heaven or if it was me in a vision. I don't know. Yet we are told that he was taken up or literally at the end of verse two, caught up into the third heaven. The word caught up is the word that we get our word rapture from. Now, again, why would Paul not want to identify himself as being that way? How many people were raptured or caught up and taken into heaven? Think about it. Three. Enoch was caught up, walked with God and was no more. Genesis chapter 5, 24. Elijah, 2 Kings 2, 11, and Jesus. And now Paul says, and I was caught up. Now with that, what, why does he not want to identify with him? Because he doesn't want to say I'm in this, this special crowd. He's really trying to keep it on the down low as far as his, his position. Have you ever been with somebody who really likes to name drop? To puff themselves up. You know, I was having lunch the other day with the mayor and the governor and the president. I was, I, I was here and I was, I was rubbing elbows with this person or that person or whoever. Why? Because it's all part of puffing them up and boasting. Paul doesn't want to boast. But he needs to carry out the message so that they understand that his apostolic authority comes from God. And that he has had revelation from God. Notice 14 years ago. Has God done other things in his life during that time? Yeah. But this one's a significant one. And so he's boasting as one in his relationship with the Lord. Notice, in Christ. And he says, this is, this is what has happened. Now, again, he doesn't know if he was in the vision physically or, or just, you know, spiritually. He doesn't know. And this is a really good point for us. Because he says, I don't know if I was caught up physically or if I was caught up in spirit. I don't know. And he leaves it there. Now, why is this important? Because where the Bible leaves something silent, we need to leave it silent. When the Bible explains something, we can explain it. From the Bible. But if the Bible's silent on it, we should remain silent on it and respect that silence. Paul did that. He said, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. I'm not going to guess. Now, could he have manufactured something? Yeah, but he says, I'm confused about it. And it happened to him. And there are things in the Bible where you will come across and you'll go, I need more information. And so I'm going to leave it as sacred and I'm going to leave it until I get more information. It's okay not to be able to explain it. And just leave it silent there. That's all right. We get into trouble when we start speculating or inserting our own opinion or we start drafting all of these things, these ideas and concepts, and we create another theology. So Paul says, I don't know. Got caught up. Taken up within this. The word harpagenta means to be snatched away, 
raptured into the third heaven. You say, okay, Carrie, where is the third heaven? I can tell you this, I don't know. I don't know. But based on my understanding of, of this third heaven, we are given a name. What is the name that is given? I was caught up in the third heaven, which is, and he says later in verse 7, I was caught up in the third heaven, and it was what? Or six? Paradise. Now, does that name ring a bell to any of y'all? Has that been used before? Sure. So instead of trying to speculate where the third heaven is, we can look to Scripture and say, this is what the third heaven is. Not where it is, because we don't know. But what is it? Now, based on the culture, it was this place that was beyond space. So you have the, 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 the space that you see, and then you have the outer space, and it's beyond the other space, and that was just the reference to the place of God. Do we know where it is? No. But we do know that, by definition, paradise is the place with God. How do we know that? Luke twenty three forty three. Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me where? In paradise. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is where? So where is paradise? It's the presence of God. It's in heaven. And if you go to the end of Revelation where the tree of life is located, you can read about it in Revelation 21. And 22, and that description of being heaven. So, would it be safe to say that the third heaven is the third heaven is the presence of God in heaven? Absolutely, because Jesus says, "You'll be with me there." Pretty safe to say with that. So, Paul was caught up into heaven or into the presence of God, and what did he experience? Words that were inexpressible. That that in that he could not be able to. Speak them and says, in fact, it says, which a man is not permitted to speak. Again, where the Bible is silent, we, we leave it silent. Now, are there other visions where someone was caught up into heaven, was able to experience and see and hear things and then bring that message back to man? The whole book of Revelation. The Apostle John was given visions, and he was able to see things. Why? Because it was the apocalypse, or the revealing of Jesus to man in the end times. That was a specific message that was from God to man. Paul's vision, whether it was in body or out of body, he doesn't know, was a private message. He wasn't allowed to be able to bring that back. This was just for Paul, where he was caught up. When? We know it was 14 years earlier, closer to the time when he was um, saved, when he met Jesus, but we don't know to what extent. But it was a personal encounter, which again is something that I, is a detail that I want to point out. Your personal encounters with God, you will have some personal encounters with God that you need to keep private and only bring them out when necessary, but only give the details when necessary. If God doesn't call you to share something, then don't share it. But there are many times when they get when people get into the static or they get into the revelatory realm 
They want to puff themselves up and share all of these things in order to build themselves up. Do you follow? In my prayer time, I saw heaven open up. That was your time. Did God tell you to share that? Or are you sharing it to puff yourself up? Are you sharing that private moment with God just to build your ego or to make yourself look better than others? Notice how Paul, in humility, uses limited information to establish his apostolic authority. Powerful example. I think so many times we talk way too much. We need to say what needs to be said and, and be minimalist within this. I think in many ways Paul had a Mount Sinai experience where he himself beheld the glory of God. We think about uh, 1 Corinthians 3.18 when Paul writes this. And I think Paul had this in the back of his mind as he wrote this passage. Look at what Paul writes to the same church. But we all with unveiled face beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as the Lord in the Spirit. But we all with unveiled face. I believe he had already had that experience and came back to the church of Corinth and said, I had an unveiled face. Moses, unveiled face, saw God, came down. Face was shining. Why? Because he had experienced the Shekinah glory of God within that. Personal experience. Transformative. Could Paul boast? Sure, he could have gone around and said, you know what? I went up to the third heaven. How many of you false prophets have gone up to the third heaven? I've seen God. I've seen Jesus. How many of you done that? You don't see Paul ever doing that. Why? Because it was in humility. Humility doesn't elevate yourself in the minds of others higher than you should be. Humility also doesn't belittle yourself in the minds of others less than you should be. Have you ever seen somebody that was proudly humble? Oh, I'm just a worm. I'm a nothing. Saved by the grace of God. You know, God's been so good to me. Stop it. Just be who you are. Nothing less, nothing more. Creation of God. And enjoy that. Don't, don't let that pendulum swing either way. You can be humble so much as a form of pride. And Paul understood who he was in Christ. His last element actually kind of comes out of this, and this is where he shares another thing that is personal. This is something that kept him in check. In verses 7 through 10, after sharing about this revelation, he shares more the consequence that came after the revelation. After appearing before the throne of God in vision or in body, we don't know. He received a thorn in the flesh. Notice it says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, plural, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times, and it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, 
for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness and insults and distresses, persecutions, difficulties, and for Christ's sake, for which I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned an amazing lesson. And it was something that God had done to keep him humble. Paul was called out as a, a Hebrew above Hebrews, Pharisee above Pharisees. He was top dog. Met Jesus. Jesus humbled him. And he says, you're going to be a messenger to the Gentiles. And Paul could do miracles and he experienced things and he saw Jesus. He, he would call himself an apostle born late in time. He got to see this heavenly vision and signs and wonders and all of these things. Would Paul have the potential to become puffed up like he was before? Sure he would. So what did God do? God said, Paul, I'm going to allow you to be tormented. Thank you very much, God. Paul says, I got a thorn in the flesh. Now, do we know what the thorn in the flesh is? No. The word, you know, you think a thorn in the flesh like a splinter, right? Gets in there, you can't get it out, festers. No, the word thorn there is steak like you would use for a tent stake. It's big and it hurts and it's not going away. And so within this, he would get this thorn in the flesh and he says, and I got it because of all of the great experiences and revelations that God did for me. And then he sent this thorn in the flesh. Notice it was God that sent it, this bothersome festering sore. God sent it. God could remove it. God, and Paul knew it and so he would pray. And notice, it was this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, can you think of somebody in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where God allowed a tormentor to come and torment his life? His name is what? Job. Now, Job, it wasn't a humble Job, it was a provable point. So you think about our lives. Does God allow a tormentor to torment, torment us for a purpose? Sure he does. And does God always answer our prayers the way that we want them answered? You all laugh. Because you all know it. No. But that thorn in the flesh was there for a purpose. God does not allow His kids and His people to be tormented for no reason. There is a reason. Do we always know what that reason is? It, no. For Job, it was to prove a point of righteousness. For Paul, it was to keep him humble. Can you imagine the great Paul seeing heaven, signs, wonders, and all of these things, praying and doing all of these great things? Physician, heal yourself. Can't do it. Can't do it. A man of prayer, a man of faith. And he can't get rid of this demonic force that is bothering him. We know that this thorn in the flesh was a physical condition. Some people think it's psychological, but I don't think so. Based on Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, it says, But you know that it was because of a, of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you first in time, and that it was a trial to you in my bodily condition, 
you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. There and then other places he says, look, I write these, this letter with big letters because of my own hands. It is thought that the thorn in the flesh had something to do with his eyesight and his physical appearance. He says here in Galatians, you let me teach you, but I was ugly looking. And, and so one commentator describes Paul as a short Jewish man with hunch, that was hunched over and had bug eyes. Not somebody very impro- uh, approachable within this. We don't know what it was. We don't know how it was. Again, the scripture is silent within that, but these are clues that we have in the word. The other thing that I think is interesting is this dual nature thing that's going on. On one side, God says, I'm going to allow this messenger of Satan to torment you, to keep you humble. On the other side, Satan says, I am going to come and I'm going to make your life a living hell because I want to destroy your witness. So the the messenger of Satan's whole goal is to make your life miserable so you will turn and hate God. On the other side, God says, nope, I'm going to limit it so that it will keep you humble and keep you dependent upon me. And we find that in anybody that has a chronic illness, don't we? When you're in a chronic illness and you pray, God, heal. And He doesn't heal. It causes you to cry out to Him, to call out to Him in prayer. But there are times that the pain and the frustration is so great that you're really tempted to check out. Why? Because that's the demonic side that's trying to destroy you. How do you fight it? You depend upon God. And you lean into that place. And you do what Paul says. I'm trusting in the answer. My grace is enough. Is God's grace enough? Yes. God's grace is always enough. Where Jesus would say, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. Not just that. My power is manifest in your weakness. In other words, when you are in your most broken state, that's when the power of God is most evident. When you were broken down, you got nothing left, and it's not you pulling you through, and it's only God, that's when the power of God is most seen in your life. There's lots of ways that God will reveal Himself, and He reveals Himself through your weakness. Should I embrace my chronic condition? Yeah, embrace it. Do I have to like it? No. Paul didn't like it. But can I get to a place of accepting it? Yes. If I understand that there's a purpose and there's a power and there's grace, then I can accept it and I can keep moving forward. And Paul uses this as, a, as this paradoxical condition as a reference to God calling him and working in his life that he really is an, an apostle from God. And I believe it is a paradox that we're all in. So what is Paul's conclu- conclusion? When I'm weak, at the end of verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because it's the power of God flowing through me. 
Paul moves on in verses 11 to 13 with a little bit of sarcasm. As now he turns the table and he starts dealing with their sin. Verses 11 to 13, he says this, And I have become foolish before yourselves. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. In other words, you caused me to brag and be foolish. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of the true apostle were performed among you with a per- perseverance by the signs and the wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. Well, forgive me for this wrong. Heavy in sarcasm. So what does he say in here? Well, he says, look it, I've, I, I've had to brag about this and talk about this because you forced me to. You wanted to know what authenticates me. It's the fact that God is working in my life and empowering me. And these are the personal things that God has done that I know that God is working in my life. These are the personal testimonies for me. And Paul goes on, he says, I should have been accepted by the church, but you're not accepting me. I am an apostle on par with even your great apostles. They haven't had that kind of an experience. The church was looking after the big name apostles. They didn't see Paul as that. Why? Because Paul remained humble. There's a lot of people that will pursue Christian celebrities. And in the pursuit of Christian celebrities, they puff them up as if their testimony was any better than the average guy in the church. And they're not. They are people. That God uses. We have to be careful about pursuing Christian celebrities. Because the same God that's working in the, in the celebrity in the church of 10,000 is the same God that's working in the pastor in the church of 20. The same Holy Spirit. And the same value. And so many times we get caught up going, well, I want to go here because this person is speaking. God can speak through whomever He chooses, in whatever manner He chooses. And you don't have to have all the following. Paul was condemning them because they were looking for the big name apostles. And they didn't see Him in that category. They were, they were pursuing the wonderment of signs and wonders and miracles. And they were missing the theology. They were looking for the flamboyant miracle workers that were seeking to lar- draw the large crowds within that. Why? To finance their personal lifestyle. Do we have that in our world today? Absolutely we do. You want, and, and the problem is in that process they're deceiving the simple-minded. And they don't teach theology. You want to know who to follow? Don't chase signs and miracles and, and all of these visions and all these other things. Follow the one that teaches God's Word. Line upon line. They're the ones that are going to follow you. And, and then in 13, with a lot of sarcasm, he says, For what in respect did we treat you inferior to the rest? Do you feel like I've, I've treated you poorly? Maybe I have. Maybe I treated you poorly because I didn't ask any money from you to support me personally. The church of Corinth was the only church that Paul did not accept any personal financial uh, support from. 
All the money that was being collected was, was going to go to the Church of Jerusalem. So sarcastically, he says, if you really wanted to feel included, maybe I should have taken some of your money like these other guys. Would that make you feel better? I love Paul's sarcasm. So then he says, and I love it at the end, please forgive me for not ripping you off. He goes on, though. He ends it with that, and he says, now get ready for this last visit. Verses 14 to 21. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you for children are not responsible to save up for their parents and the parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls, and if I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. And I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brothers with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? And did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? All this time that you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you, actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding and beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife and jealousy and anger and tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance and disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I, am, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality which they have practiced. So, as he's drawn this to a close, he says, for the third time, I'm telling you I'm coming. For the third time, I'm going to be out there. This is not a surprise that I'm coming. You need to be prepared. He's been warning them all along. And so then he says, just get ready. And he says, I'm not seeking anything from you personally. And then he gives this great illustration that shows the Father's heart. I'm not seeking to get anything from you for me. It's not the job of the children to take care of the parent. It's the job of the parent to take care of the children. Paul saw himself as a parent. He's not saying, hey, look it. I brought this church into existence. Now you owe me. No. He says, I'm willing to be spent and expended for your sake. Question. Would you be able to do that if you were Paul? To go someplace that they've treated you poorly? that thinks that, they, that all you want is to rob them? Paul's trying to clear up the misunderstanding as a father. I want things to be right between us. I want to be able to come. I want to be able to be loved and to, and by you. You really want to pay me back for all of this? Just love me and respect me. And isn't that the goal of any parent for your kids? I'm not looking to take from my kids. I just, want to, I just want them to love and respect me. As a parent, that's all he's looking for. 
in this reciprocal relationship as he provides for them, he's just looking for the respect of a father as a good parent. And Paul is a good parent. His role is to continue to teach, to train, to encourage, and correct where necessary. Just as like it's the same goal for anyone. And Paul even sent Titus in the group. And he says, look it, if they've done something wrong, let me know. Because I'm responsible for them too. But neither Paul nor Titus took advantage of him. So in verses 19 to 21, he shares his concerns. If you notice, he three times says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid at this time that perhaps when I come, I may not be what you want. And you may not be what I want. In other words, there may be a rift in the relationship that is there. Paul felt that he had a clear conscience before God. He didn't feel like he had to defend himself to the church. And he spoke as the authority of Christ. Parenting is hard, especially when you have rebellious children. Because when you have to come across tough, oftentimes you second-guess yourself. Was I too hard? Should I have said these things? Well, Paul gives us an example. He says, in humility, be spent for their behalf. And when you speak, speak in Christ. Speak in Christ. Don't speak in self. Speak in Christ. Have that be the foundation that which you speak. And within that, again, he was afraid that this church would be in such a a state of corruption when he gets there that all he's going to have to do, or all he's going to have time to do is to be able to deal with the fightings and things that are going on. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to get there and enjoy them and spend time with them and fellowship and not having to discipline them. And again, isn't that true with your kids? You don't want to always be disciplining them. You want to enjoy them. So he's writing this letter ahead of time. He's going to send it and he's going to say, get your stuff together. So we can have a good time when we get together. The third aspect is, is his concern as a spiritual father is this. Mike, I am concerned that I will be humiliated by you. What was the humiliation? Before men? No. Before God. Paul took his role as spiritual father serious. And if the church was misbehaving, idolatrous, they were fighting and full of chaos and they were his spiritual children that he had to give an answer to God for that he would be humiliated before God because of how they're behaving. And he says, I'm concerned that when I get there and I see how you're behaving, God's going to hold me accountable as not being a good dad. Have you ever thought about that? How your kids behave is a direct reflection on your ability to lead them. And you feel responsible for that. And Paul did spiritually. Maybe I didn't teach like I should. Maybe I didn't instruct like I should. Maybe I didn't correct when I should. And there's that hanging over him. Can you hear his heart beating for these people? Please, get it together. And so we can learn these lessons from Paul as, as parents. He felt deeply responsible for their growth and for their well-being. And he didn't give up on them. He still was seeking to be there for them in Christ. 
So he turns the corner a little bit more with these last few verses and preparing them for a little bit of a harsher tone. So he's going to come down hard in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Now, he said that again, right? Just in case you missed it, I'm on my way. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time and now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well. If I come again, I will not spare anyone. And since you are seeking for proof of Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. And now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right. And even though we may appear approved, for we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for that you may, you may be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when, I, when present I need not to use severity in accordance with authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Do you hear his heart? Get your stuff together. Because when I get there, we're going to have a little trial. We're going to bring out all the facts and we're going to talk about the truth. He quotes out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And it was the standard. It says, A single witness may not rise up against a man on account of his iniquity or sin which he's committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, matters shall be confirmed. He uses this court kind of setting because what he doesn't want to do is he doesn't want to come in and say, Look, it, I heard that you were being immoral. No, he's going to say, the accusation is that you were being immoral, and here are the two or three witnesses from your own people that tell me that that is, that is the case. Why is that there? To confirm the sin and protect the innocent. Did Jesus have two or three witnesses against him that were legitimate? No, they had to go find him and bribe him. He was innocent. Paul says we're going to get to the root of the problem. And we're going to establish the truth that is there. Paul needed to cleanse the church of their behavior and, bring, and he was going to use truth to do that. And again, he had been warning them time and time again. Paul doesn't have to approve himself again. Verse 3, he says, Since you are seeking proof from Christ, who speaks in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, you're looking for the proof. Here's how you know the proof. Is the Holy Spirit living in you? In other words, are you saved? You'll know because the truth is in you. Test yourself and see if you're in the faith. That's a powerful statement. Examine yourself. Because if you're in the faith, the Christ in you will affirm the Christ in me. Test yourself. How do we test ourselves to see if we're in the faith? 
Well, one of the ways is this. If you're in the faith, then your actions are going to reveal one who's in the faith. You're going to live like one who's in the faith. And you'll know the truth. Question, is it better for you to examine yourself and make the appropriate adjustments? Or would you rather God do it? Uh, just ask it. I, I think it's much better for you to examine yourself. Paul said, examine yourself. Otherwise, when we get there, Christ in me, we're going to do it together. And I think it's a whole lot better to be able to do it God's way. But the sinner that lives against the law, he's looking for proof to believe. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to accept it. And so Paul says, test themselves. I think it's important for us to, to be honest with ourselves. Do you, have you tested yourself to see if you're in the faith? I mean, really examined yourself? There are so many nominal or non-existent Christians by name. It's a personal question. It's a personal examination. Am I truly in the faith? Have I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Have I asked for forgiveness of my sins because I know I'm a sinner? Is the Holy Spirit dwelling in me? When was the last time, even as a believer, if you tested yourself in the faith? Am I walking in a manner that's consistent with true faith? What do my actions reveal about my faith? You see, that is something that we need to put ourselves to the test often. Are my actions lining up and revealing that I am in the faith? Paul knows he is. Paul knows he hasn't failed the test of the apostle or the apostolic authority. He knows where he is. And within this, he is praying for them. And he knows that he won't fail the test. And he's trusting that they won't fail the test. But he's putting it out there as a good father and says, check yourself. Check your heart. Don't fail that test. And have that change of attitude that they'll accept. And Paul wants to be accepted within this. To do what's right. Verse 7 says, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right. And isn't that what we pray for our kids? That they'll do the right thing? Paul ends with a benediction. And as we prepare for communion, we'll listen to this benediction. It's Paul's prayer. It's his prayer for these people. And he comes back out of compassion and a desire to encourage them. He says this, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That is a great benediction. That's a great blessing. To be able to rejoice and be made perfect. But we're only made perfect through the blood of Jesus. Who died on the cross for our sins. We celebrate communion based on that. We've been made perfect not by our own works or our own actions. But by what Jesus did at the cross. We are put into the body of Christ. 
At the time when we are, our sins are forgiven, we're accepted and we're adopted as children. We demonstrate that through baptism. So next Sunday, we're going to have another baptism. Another person come up. Young uh, a child, older child, kind of. Not a young, young child. Wants to get baptized. Why? Because she wants to declare that she is in Christ. And she can tell me that she asked Jesus to forgive her of her sins and asked Jesus to fill her heart that the Holy Spirit would live in her. Great testimony within that. And out of the, the mouth of a child, just so simple within this, that the God of love and peace would be with you. And He is. His last words were to greet each other with a holy kiss. We don't practice that anymore. Thank you very much. But it was their way of greeting each other. He says, all the saints greet you. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May we experience that presence and that power of God even now as we celebrate this communion. May we honor Him with our lives. This table is available to anyone who, who has accepted Jesus, been forgiven of your sins. The bread representing the body of Jesus, the, the cup representing His blood that was shed for us to wash away those sins. If you've asked Jesus into your heart and for that forgiveness of sins, this is for you. If you haven't, don't take communion because it has no meaning. It's not a snack. It is a memorial. It helps us to remember what Jesus has done. And it's out of obedience because He asked us to. Why else wouldn't I take communion? If you have sin in your life that you are not willing to give up. The church of Corinth was celebrating the Lord's Supper. Some were getting sick and some were dying because they would gather together and have the supper. But they were doing it with disrespect. And they would die. That's how serious God takes this. This, is, this reminds us of Jesus' body and His blood. My prayer for you is this. During this next time of worship, as we sing, have your heart prepared. Come up anytime. Take the elements and sit back down or stand. Wait till everybody's been served and then we'll eat it all together as one body. In the end, let me pray for us. God, I thank you. I thank you, God, that, that you are the God that saves, the God that heals, the God Almighty. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being called your child. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is struggling with sin in their life, that they might confess it even now and surrender their life. If there's anyone here or watching that has not come to that place where they're examining themselves now and they're saying, I am not in the faith. I'm not saved. May they cry out to you, God, save me. May they receive that promise of salvation that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, they shall be saved. And during this time of worship, may we honor you with our whole being. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
everybody been served? God, we thank you for all that you've provided for us. This bread and the cup. Memorials, reminders of an amazing love. An eternal love. That before time began, you knew our name. Chosen to be children of the Most High. God, you knew us. You know our ways, our missteps, our mistakes, our failures, our rebellion. You know our hearts, and you love us anyways. We thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Your Son, hope, life, community, and eternity. We thank you. So we hold up this bread. Let's give thanks. Take a moment and just maybe silently or out loud you can tell God thank you and then I'll close that time. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. God, we thank you for this bread. It reminds us of the body of Jesus. Hung on the cross. Placed in a tomb. And rose again to new life. We celebrate that new life. And we honor your death. We receive this bread as a blessing. And a reminder. That our sins have been paid for. Completely and forever. And again, we thank you. May you bless this bread. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. Praise you, Lord. In the same way, we'll hold the cup up and take a few moments, either out loud or silently. Give thanks for the cup and then I'll close it. Father God, we thank you for this cup and all that it represents. The blood of bulls and goats could only cover sin, but it can't remove it. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. We, we recognize the fact that, Lord Jesus, you shed your blood for us, for me. That my sins are washed away, removed forever. Sin requires death. And Jesus, you died for me. To give me life. And now I stand before a holy God. Holy. I stand before God because I'm in Christ. Purified. 
And this cup that I hold reminds me of that. And in honor of you, Lord Jesus, we raise this glass and celebrate our Savior. And until that day you come to take us home, soon I hope, we will continue to be reminded by this cup and all that it means. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup together. Cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see His wounds, His hands, His feet, my Savior on that cursed tree.
sing this one more time from the depths of our being. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will sing Your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. We got one more. Here we go. Oh, praise the Jesus. We'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.